This week's episode of Walking Through the Stargate is sponsored by Asgacorp, makers of the Asgard Personal Invisibility Shield, perfect for navigating the holiday season. Visit their Earth-based store just outside Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, or shop online at asgacorp.co.odinson. Thank you, Asgacorp, for sponsoring this episode. What is it? It's your future. It's called a Stargate. Chevron 7 locked. Welcome to Walking Through the Stargate. I'm Brent. And I'm Zach. This is episode 59, and we'll be talking about Stargate SG-1's episode, New Ground. You can find us on Google Play Podcasts and on Spotify Podcasts, and we still have no idea how you can indicate if you are actually, like, you know, enjoying the show and listening on those platforms. I don't know. Who cares? Just maybe speak it aloud, and Google will hear it, and then they'll know better. Uh, And also, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, where it is much more traditional. You can clickety-do and give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Hey, that I didn't even intend. I'm I'm a Dr. Seuss, and uh, <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, you can totally oh do that. And when you totally do that, it'll be totally rad, super great. Yeah. So uh, so Zach, if yes, somebody Brent. says to themselves, uh, "Wow, that was super great, Brent. Your your rhyming skills are so smooth and so fluid. I only wish I could be as good as you with the Dr. Seussisms." How do I, uh, you know, let them know that I think that he is so fantastic, Zach? How would somebody let us know that they think so highly of my rhyming skills? Well, um, first of all, if they do that, they'll just sit there and they'll blink a little bit because they'll be shocked and slightly embarrassed. Uh, but <laughs> is that, because was that your reaction? Is, there there? is a word. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to get a hold of us and talk uh-huh. about Brent's abilities to make rhymes or something else, uh, you can <laughs> email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. That is W A L K I N G T H R O U G H T H E S T A R G A T at gmail.com. Mm hmm. Or you can find us on Twitter at Stargate Walking and join us for conversations there. Uh, or on Facebook with the Walking Through the Stargate. We have a Facebook page. Go ahead and hit that like button and that subscribe button or whatever it is that's on I Facebook. I don't even know. Yeah, hit the button. I don't know. I don't but, know. But, but hit all the buttons, the follow <laughs> buttons. And- <laughs> Smash them all. Just roll your face on the keyboard for a while. It'll be fine. There you go. <laughs> And, and uh, uh, you know, also we have a Facebook group, Walking Through the Stargate. Just hit that join button there, you know, smashing all of the buttons with your face. So if you want to show a video of you smashing all the buttons with your face, I'm sure the rest of us would love to see that. That would be hilarious. Clackety, clackety, clack. Clack, clack, clack. Yep, yep. Also, uh, with that, uh, we are working on a Patreon. Uh, it is not yet up. Uh, but nope. it will be up uh, relatively soon, certainly yep. by the beginning of January. We hope to have it up uh, potentially yep. sooner than that. If it is, we'll let you know uh, when all that's happening. Uh, lots of things going on there. Yeah. We're excited. Uh, yeah. Should be a lot of fun. Um, so, Brent, I yes. think it is time to dig into this episode, New Ground. New Grounds. Let's do it. New Ground. Not Grounds. This isn't coffee. Oh, right. I made it's that mistake new, last time. New ground. New ground. D. Let's All talk right. about this episode of New Ground. Okay, okay. we'll go talk about it. <laughs> right. This episode is directed by Chris McMullen. This is Chris's only Stargate credit, and not God, only is it his really? only Stargate credit, it is his only directing credit. Huh. Uh, he, he did a pretty is, good job. Uh, 
spoilers. Sorry. Oh, yeah. He's primarily a camera operator. He's done tons and tons of shows from the late 80s all the way up to today. Mm-hmm. Um, and with his camera operator, he's also known for doing a lot of steady cam work. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually meant to uh, watch this eye for watch this episode for an eye for steady cams, and I just watched the episode for the episode and didn't think about that. So yeah, <laughs> and I'm trying to think. I don't think I can recall any real noticeable steady cam work. No, I mean it might have been there, but I'm not sure. Yep. Um, the teleplay is by Heather E. Ash. We've heard mm-hmm. her name several times. She wrote uh, Learning Curve, Foothold, and of course this episode, New Ground, all in season mm-hmm. three. Um, she's got two more writing credits, one in season four and another in season five. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can check out some of those other earlier podcasts for information about her. Uh, we've got a few deck. Got a, got a few got a few things there, Zach. Got a few gift <laughs> actors. <In my> words. <laughs> we have a few guest actors uh-huh. for this episode, Brent. Uh, uh-huh. Of course, we've got Terrell Rothery p- coming back as Dr. Frazier. Uh, mm-hmm. I think at this point in time, I'm not going to include her as a guest actor because she just sort right? of feels like one of the team. Which I mean, like, there's got to be a technical explanation as to who is a who is a like a title card actor and who's a guest actor. But you're right. I mean, like, Tara Rothery has been on so many episodes. She's got to be on more than eighty percent of the episodes, maybe even ninety percent of the, whatever. Uh, right. You know, she she is. Uh, as much a lead character functionally as Don Davis is, yes, who plays yes. the general, yes, um, you yes. know she's in as almost as many episodes. I haven't done the calculation as he is, uh, and such. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, so, undoubtedly, there's some compensation thing with it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, probably some Screen Actors Guild, whatever. Like, if you're a lead actor, you get this much percent or this. Much, I don't know what. The, uh, there, know, there's certainly it. something complicated in that. Sure. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, we thank Terrell for all of her work as Janet Frazier. And uh, I think from this point forward, I'm not going to con- constantly tank- ping her as a, a guest actor. Yeah, uh, we're just going sure. to assume that she's part of the team. Uh, we have Richard Ian Cox, who plays Nyan. He was mm-hmm. born in 1973 in Wales. He's mm-hmm. an actor mm-hmm. and writer known for Dino Trucks. In 2015, Spy Kids Mission Critical in 2018, and one of the voices in My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Oh! Uh, Yeah. Uh, He started his acting career at age nine, um, but his first uh, IMDb credit is in 1979 for Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, He did a few episodes of... Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, that's, a, gotcha. I think, a uh, cartoon thing going on there. Anime, I think, maybe. Anime, yeah. yep. Uh, this is his only Stargate SG-1 credit. However, hmm. we okay. will see him again in a future episode of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I saw him in Atlantis, the first time I saw that episode, so I'm like, that's that one guy from Newground, the one episode. And yeah. I wondered if it was supposed to be the same character. And mm-hmm. I've always wondered that, and, and but then as I was researching this, I discovered that according to IMDb, uh, the names of the two characters are completely different. Hmm. Um, but uh, so no, they're different characters apparently, but it is the same actor um, and such. So there you mm-hmm. go. That would be Richard Cox. 
Uh, we have Daryl Shuttleworth. And I saw that name, Shuttleworth, and I'm like, that's a cool name. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Daryl Shuttleworth. Uh, he plays Commander Riger. Uh, he's a native of Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and actually, this is uh, uh, on IMDb. He actually wrote his own mini bio. And oh, given that, okay. I'm, I got to read this. Okay. A native of Vancouver, BC, Daryl got uh, bit by the acting bug at an early age. He attended the University of Victoria and graduated from the National Theatre School of Canada in Montreal. Stage appearances across Canada include leading roles at Neptune Theatre, Halifax, Theatre New Brunswick, Centaur Theatre in Montreal, National Arts Centre in Ottawa, Canadian Stage, Toronto, Blythe Festival, Manitoba Theatre Centre, Globe Theatre, Regina, Alberta Theatre Projects, Calgary, Citadel Theatre, Edmonton, Theatre Northwest, Prince Georgia, Vancouver Playhouse and Arts Club in Vancouver, and the Belfry Theatre, Victoria. Film and television appearances include a turn in the third season of Fargo, a spin as a detective chasing spirits in Intruders, a dash of therapy in L Word, and an earthbound father in Watchmen. Hmm. That um, reads like uh, you know, like the like the biography in a playbill. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> uh, but his, still, lots of lots of detail in there. Yeah, his first role was in 1988 in an episode of Friday the Thirteenth, the series. Mm. Uh, this is his first appearance in Stargate, um, but we will see him in a future episode, but not as this character. It'll be a different ah, gotcha. character mm-hmm. uh, for Daryl. Uh, Desiree Zurowski plays Perry. She was uh, Riger's right-hand lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's from Winnipeg, Manitoba. She is known for her work on Big Eyes, Arrow, and X-Men The Last Stand. Mm-hmm. Her first acting credit came uh, in 1995 when she played a ballerina in an episode of the TV series Picture Windows. Mm-hmm. And like Daryl, this is also her first appearance on Stargate, but we will also see her again as a different character later in the series. Mm-hmm. And finally, we have uh, Jennifer Copping. She played Malin. She was born in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seckelt? I don't know how to pronounce that. Seashelt? Seashelt? Uh, something like that. Seashelt seashells, uh, seashells by the seashore? There you go. She was handpicked by Peter Townsend uh, from The Who to play the original Sally Simpson in the Toronto, Canada production of The Who's Tommy. Wow. Okay. I saw that. I'm like, that's a cool little tidbit there. Yeah. Uh, she is known for Mother of All Lies in 15, uh, mm-hmm. Becoming Redwood in 2012, and Van Helsing in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the TV series Van Helsing. Uh, maybe it's the yeah. movie. I can't remember. No, I think the movie came out earlier. Whatever. That could be. In 2013, she won a Leo Award for Best Actress in a Motion Picture for her role in Becoming Redwood. The Leo mm-hmm. Awards were uh, some sort of, uh, it's similar to the Oscars and whatnot for Canada. Uh, we actually bumped into that a, a few weeks ago. Yeah, month, I was going to say. A couple months ago yeah. with... Uh, um, Amanda Tapping was nominated for something. In that's right. For, that. for like the second, the second annual or the first day or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Um, her first acting credit, Jennifer's first acting credit on IMDb was in 1989 when she was on an episode of the TV series Booker. Mm-hmm. And this is her only Stargate credit. Gotcha. All right. So the original air date for New Ground was February 18, 2000. Number one on the charts in the U.S. was Thank God I Found You by Mariah Carey, featuring <laughs> Joe and 98 Degrees. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to... It's going to happen. I'm going to be putting these songs in here because I can't remember them. So I don't, here we yeah, go. Well, yeah. Are, are we listening to the song now? Okay. We can be. Sure, it's, right. it's going on right now. Yeah. All right. So as we listen to Thank God I Found You, uh, the UK weren't listening to Mariah Carey. They were listening to Oasis with Go Let It Out. Ain't no illusion. Try to click with what you got. Taste every potion Cause if you like yourself a lot Go let it out Go let it in And go let it out And there's Go Let It Out Alright Switching gears Switching gears to Go Let It Out by Oasis We have in the box office a lot of new movies this weekend Uh, Number one is The Whole Nine Yards Number two, Mm -hmm. Hanging Up Number three, Pitch Black Number four, Snow Day, and number five, coming in at number one last week, Scream 3. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So, as you fade those out, we will talk about what yes. happens at this point in time. Okay. Go for On it. February 18, the day this episode came out, uh, Stepan Mesic, uh, I butchered that, becomes the second president of Croatia. <laughs> and uh, Here, let me take a crack at it. I think it's probably a ya. Uh, maybe a stjepa, stjepan, and then that, that last one is going to be a cha. Stepan Mesic. 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 Uh, okay. All right. So, message in a bottle. <laughs> message. <laughs> All right. He becomes the president of Croatia in 2000 in February. Uh, mm-hmm. On the 20th of February, we have the 42nd annual Daytona 500. Pole sitter Dale, Dale Jarrett wins his third great American race ahead of Jeff Gordon and Bill Elliott. There you go. And that is about Dale all that was happening in February at this time. It was slow. Okay. Yeah. Now, we do have a few trivia things for yeah. the... The weapon that the Bedrosian security forces use, that sort of kind of arc curvy thing that's really oddly shaped, in my opinion, um, that is recycled as one of the weapons of the main bad guys in Atlantis, starting in Atlantis's second season. So they take all those things and they're like, let's reuse them, repaint them, shape, shift them around a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they spend a lot of time on the props. I'm glad, I'm glad they stuck around and got reused. Yeah. Uh, this is, of course, the first time the Nakwita generator has been uh, attempted to be used in the field after its development and learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that would actually make sense that that uh, Heather Ash wrote uh, both of those episodes. She wrote Learning Curve, and now uh, several episodes later this season, she's like, hey, yep. let's bring that back. Let's and that's bring that cool. back, yep. Uh, and suffice it to say, we'll see the Nakwita generator play a significant role moving forward that becomes a piece of new technology that they have. 
uh, from this point on. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, the SG-1, uh, as they uh, left the planet, had to abandon a whole lot of hardware. Some mm-hmm. of it probably rather critical. Uh, so let's just list what some of the things that they left behind. Three GDOs, a Naquita generator, a portable dialing computer, a MALP, weaponry, which include a Zatnikatel, two HK MP5A3 submachine guns, two M9 pistols, three combat ni- knives, six fragmentation grenades, Teal'c's staff weapon, as well as three magnetic compasses and four radios. So I I noticed that everybody beat a hasty retreat, and I was cognizant that that tent there in the background had a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of stuff as they beat their hasty retreat. And I was thinking that's a lot of material they're leaving behind. The, the, the thought did cross my mind, but now I'm kind of realizing, like some of this stuff, if I see it in the in a future episode, it's presumably rebuilt, like the Nakwada generator. If we see that thing again. Which is possible, of course, it's possible. But like, that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Well, I mean, they have to have like a fleet of a bazillion malps. Yes, uh, they're so, losing them all the time because they're using them all the time. And while they do certainly send them back if they can, um, but uh, and the GDO know, is a standard, you know. G- GDO is a standard, uh, you know, standard thing for all SG teams. So that's the thing, and then you can right. just redial, get new codes. That's no problem. The compasses, um, the radios, that's not such a big yeah. deal. The grenades, you know, since those are a one and done type of thing, if somebody actually yes. tries to play with that, um, the Zat guns, I think that they seem to come across those pretty regularly. Now, Teal'c's staff weapon. I know that there are staff weapons, and that's not the thing. But something, you know, did he when he left way back in season one? When we escaped Chulak with him, um, was he bringing along his staff weapon? Or, like, is that, um, you know, basically what I'm asking is that has he had his staff weapon this entire time? Uh, he did bring a staff weapon home with him at that point in time. I'm going to make the assumption that um, while perhaps early on he only had the one, uh, yeah. I think that since then they have done sufficient rating as necessary such that, uh, I mean, they didn't obviously build any of the Zets they have, and yet they have a significant right. stack of those lying around. Uh, so I'm guessing that, that uh, Teal'c's staff weapon is the only staff weapon about. Uh, no. In fact, uh, uh, shocker, we will see the staff weapon again. <laughs> oh yeah no obviously i mean it's just so. it's just i'm just thinking about it but then there's also the other side of this equation and i know i'm jumping the gun uh but like that's a lot of tech to leave behind and the society they left looks like they were more advanced than earth so there's probably not a lot in there that's gonna be like terribly altering right. i don't know maybe i'm getting my sci-fis mixed up you know my uh, prime directives i, I and would such. i would bet that the the most significant thing of all of those to have left behind uh is probably the Nakwita generator yeah. The portable dialing computer um, probably was not sufficiently um, advanced to warrant a whole lot of stuff in there, uh, you know. Um, but that Nakwita generator uh, could easily be, it's certainly a super uh, powerful energy device. It produces a yes. lot of energy, and it apparently is fairly clean energy. Um, and so depending on what they have, that could be a significant thing for them. The rest of it so, is yeah, whatever. 
reading the tea leaves, um, you mentioned that we are not going to see some of these characters again. Uh, it certainly stands to reason that, you know, then therefore we probably are not going to hear much or anything at all about this world ever again, which, you know, yeah, I am getting cart before horse, but whatever. Um, but uh, uh, so theoretically, that Naquita generator could have been the thing that tipped the balance of the war, allowing the, you know, our bad guys this 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 week to win their war over the presumed good guys on the other continent, um, thereby rendering this planet completely uh, un, un, unable to be reached in any kind of diplomatic way ever again. Yeah. Just, well, just saying. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see. Who knows? We, I'm sure there's fanfic out there for that. Ooh, you're probably right. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. I'm sorry. I totally right. derailed our flow. No, 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 no. This is this is a good conversation. It's part of the episode. Um, so uh, Heather Ash writes. I conceived this episode thinking of evolution. What if we went to a planet, a former Gould colony that believed in evolution? And they were wrong. Hmm. Acknowledging the executive producers of the show, Ash goes on, Brad Wright and Robert Cooper really helped get the action into the episode. Plus, it was a great opportunity to see Teal'c in a position, an utterly helpless warrior dependent on someone he didn't trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the names Bedrosian and Optrican uh, comes from... Uh, Ash's agent, Matt Bedrosian, gives that side. <laughs> and uh, there is a guy, Tony Optikin, who worked for MGM at the time. And so they tweaked that a little bit, the Optrikins. That's uh, funny. So, I, wonder if he, I wonder if she liked his a- her agent. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's interesting. Uh, you know, so... As I was reading this, the fact that she kind of began this, like, what if somebody believed in evolution and then they turned out to be wrong, Mm -hmm. uh, is really fascinating because that's not how I initially saw it. Um, uh, I guess I hadn't thought specifically about evolution, but um, I I thought about uh, um, the the debates that we have between Mm -hmm. science and religion today. Uh, mm-hmm. which are a really important thing for me and, and my uh, worldview and such. Um, and, and that brings new uh, thoughts to me to think that uh, uh, the, the Bedrosians being ones to say, hey, no, no, we, we actually started here and, and all of this stuff and were created this way. And um, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll have to chew on that as we continue with this. Sure. Yes. Um, so uh, that's what I have there. Uh, we do have a couple of interesting titles um, in other languages. We mm-hmm. have the French, it's a new world, uh, Italian, new ground, Spanish. You know what? There you go. There you get your new grounds in Spanish. Hey! Okay, good. Uh, Czech, they call it new knowledge. In mm-hmm. uh, German, they call it deadly treason uh the germans are quite good at nailing it right on the nose well um i mean nobody dies who, who was treasonous well the the whole idea is that uh well i don't know <laughs> it worked in my head <laughs> um 
anyway, Nyan, okay. Nyan was technically treasonous. Ah. Uh, uh, if 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 what we understand as treason is to be uh, speaking out and acting out uh, in a way that does not benefit the uh, ruling government of your area. Uh, that is to say, I'm a citizen of the United States and I act out against the interests of the United States government, uh, that would be, if that's considered treason, then um, what Nyan did was treasonous. Uh, Zach, I think that is admirable retcon that, you are, that you're doing here. Uh, you know, I'm really good at retconning. Yes, you are, and I, and I'm not being facetious. I think that this is admirable, but I, I also think it's a bit it's a bit thin. But you know what? It's technically working, so we'll 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 run with it. You know what? It's the Germans. It's I don't know Ger- what that means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Suffice it to say, the Hungarians call this new principles. Ah, new principles. Yes. All right. Okay. So, with all of that, shall we dig into the synopsis for New Ground? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Nyan and Malin are unburying a Stargate. The two archaeologists are clearly excited by what they have discovered. Suddenly, the chevrons begin to light up. Nyan and Malin are stunned, uncertain what's going on. The gate opens. Nyan reaches out and touches the event horizon with curiosity. Suddenly, a malp travels through the gate. Carter has set up a program that will periodically dial up gate addresses from the Abydos cartouche that have already been dialed but came up with nothing. Today is the first time this program has made a hit. Someone, somewhere, has unburied their gate. Carter and Jackson are excited. Jack looks on, and Tilk just stands there. (laughs) They send a malp to see what's going on. The Malp scans the area and notices two people standing nearby. Daniel makes first contact and asks if they can visit. Nyan says yes, but now Malin is clearly scared by what this might be. The gate closes as SG-1 makes preparations. Malin takes off running away as Nyan calls her back. If she tells them, they're going to kill them! SG-1 goes through the gate and meets Nyan. After some initial greeting, Nyan explains the situation on their planet. Nyan is a citizen of the Bedrosians, who live on the continent with the Stargate. They believe that their god Nefertum created them on this planet. The Bedrosians are at war with the Optricans. The Optricans are from another continent and believe that they were brought to this planet through a gateway as slaves, and only after a natural disaster destroyed the gateway were they freed. They believe the gateway that brought them to this planet is in Bedrosia. SG-1 quickly recognized Nefertum as a system lord who worked with Ra. The Optricans are correct. The Bedrosians are wrong. O'Neill wants to know how close to the front front lines they are. Nyan tells him that they are quite far. Still, this place is not a safe place. And so O'Neill orders Carter to set up the Nakwita generator to the gate to power it up since they found no DHD in their original scan. But before she can finish this process, several aircrafts can be seen coming toward them. Malin ran off and told the Bedrosian authorities that aliens were coming through the gate. The military was approaching to seal off the area. O'Neill, Carter, and Daniel are captured. 
Teal'c manages to escape into the woods, as does Nyan. But while in the woods, Teal'c comes across a Bedrosian officer. The two fire upon each other. The Bedrosian dies. Teal'c is badly injured and blinded. Commander Riger, the commander of the Bedrosian military forces, interrogates the prisoners. He believes that they are Optrican spies come to see dissent among the Bedrosian people, come to soil and corrupt the beliefs about Nefertum held by Riger and his people. Riger is clearly willing to do whatever he needs to do to ensure that his belief system remains intact. He refuses to accept even the possibility that SG-1 might be speaking the truth. Nyan finds Teal'c and leads him to a cave to recover. Teal'c's symbiote was also damaged and, as such, must spend time healing itself before it can heal the Jaffa. Nyan offers to help with a device that will uh, work to restore the optical nerve in Teal'c's eye. It works, but slowly. Teal'c's very existence proves Nyan's belief system to be incorrect, yet he is still fascinated by this discovery. As a scientist, he is equally excited when a hypothesis is proved wrong as when it is proved right. Scientific advance in any direction is still advance. Commander Riger's people uncover the DHD, as well as the soldier Teal'c killed in the forest. As the interrogations continue, General Hammond dials the gate and radios the team. Riger and Hammond discuss the situation, Hammond wants his people back, but Riger refuses, continuing to believe the SGC is just part of an Optrican fallacy. He threatens to kill SG-1 if any rescue is attempted. With Nyan by his side, and Teal'c's health better than it was, the Jaffa stages a dramatic rescue. With Zet blasts and Bedrosian stun blasts all over the place, SG-1 is freed. They open the gate, they enter a GDO code, and narrowly escape through the Stargate. Nyan, who got hit, uh, joins them back to Earth. On Earth, Teal'c and Nyan recover from their injuries in the infirmary. Jackson offers Nyan the opportunity to work as his research assistant. Nyan accepts and wonders if he'll ever get a chance to return to his home. The end. The end. So, Brent. Yeah. New ground. What'd you think? I, uh... I had a positive jam about this episode almost from, well, no, from exactly from the very beginning. Um, there was a lot of, it felt like there was a lot of thought put into the societies. Um, and because it felt like there was a lot of thought put into the societies, there was a lot of, of detail, which felt, um, it felt just right. And what do I mean? I mean, it felt it felt unique and, quote, alien, unquote, in the sense that it didn't feel like they were just props from, you know, from the drugstore on Earth. Um, it felt like it was very thoughtful, very intentional. There was there was uh, aspects about their society which mirrored uh, our current society and understanding, which is what good sci-fi always does. Mm-hmm. But it felt like it was a bit more... Uh, you know, it felt like it was thoughtful and it was written in a way with it felt like the writer was in the, was inhabiting this world and was writing a scene that felt very believable 
from the start all the way through. Um, it's part of the reason why I was kind of uh, excited to hear that the props were getting reused because you know they were they were unique and they looked authentic and they looked thoughtful and hmm. um, you know the 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 situation as it developed felt authentic and it felt like it was thoughtful and it didn't feel like it was just a play uh, on an allegory here uh, in the real world. It felt like a, a plausible thing that could happen in the adventures of our heroes. Like it feels very realistic that there would be a planet that they visit where finally there's a little bit of difference on the planet. It's represented by two main groups, not, um, you know, not hundreds. Right. Um, and you know, they're the, the situation is kind of binary, but on the same token, at least it feels kind of, you know, realistic that they, they land in a spot, they land in a spot where they're basically in the middle of, of hostile, uh, forces that they didn't know were going to be hostile nobody knew you know like everybody's everybody's exploring this for the first time and everybody's going on their um their principles yeah. uh you know our scientist is going on his scientific principles um you know our military commander is going on his militaristic and his faith-based principles um uh you know our our sg1 team is going on their uh you know more or less honor code systems uh, and i don't mean to imply more or less as in like you know it wasn't honorable it's just you know they were operating under uh you know some military principles in the form of 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 o'neill and carter uh teal to a, a high degree as well and jackson was uh, was operating on his civilian in a military role for the past few years role where he's he is providing information but he's also doing it very strategically like you know it was very plausible the whole thing yeah I also want to uh, toss in here yeah. real quick as I was, as you were talking about the binary quality of this town of this this uh, planet. Uh, think about if you uh, were to enter into, um, say, the United States or to the Soviet Union during uh, the Cold War. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, in in that situation, um, if you only had a couple of days and then you were disappearing again. Uh, you could easily assume that there are only two uh, monolithic things on this planet. Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. That's a good we point. wouldn't That's be talking read. about anybody else. We'd just be talking about those evil uh, Russians or the evil yes. Americans uh, right. and whatnot, uh, depending on which side you were on. Yep. So that yep. actually makes a lot of sense. It's a good read. Yep. yep. Yeah. So so then... So then, so then, the the setting felt really good. Like there was a lot, there was a lot in there that was just it was just detail that they didn't really go into and they didn't need to. And because they didn't get into it, it felt authentic. And it was it was I, I liked that. Um, strangely to me, it felt more. I got to think about this one for a second. But so here's my first reaction. It felt a little bit more authentic than even some of the um, Gould setting. That has been done. And maybe that's because, you know, in the Stargate movie, the whole intention was to set up uh, the Egyptian culture as basically an offshoot of of Gould culture. And Stargate, the show, has been playing off of that riff with a little bit of tweaks here and there. It's been advancing the idea a little bit. It's been expanding the cultures that uh, that the Gould have been exploiting and uh, and influencing, you know, to good aim. But mm -hmm. this one felt a little bit more. Honestly, I felt like this one was a bit more like Battlestar Galactica, the television show, the 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 one that started in two thousand four. Whereas there was just a lot of detail that was popped in here. It was intended that these people should be extremely relatable. Like it was intended that 
the Bedosians and well, you only saw the Bedosians were behaving in ways that felt a lot like us here on earth. And, but there was plenty about how they just carried themselves and walked around and held their little weapons and their uniforms and their little huts and, you know, it, like the little shock cages and all that, you know, everything about it was just, it just felt, it felt authentic. And, and it was very nice to inhabit that world for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So then we get into the story and, you know, the story is, I don't know, it felt pretty straightforward and not in a bad way. It was, you know, like there are some, some inquisitive, scientifically minded folks who discover a thing. It is divisive. It immediately creates a problem. Um, there is a leader to whom they defer in one degree or another uh, who is exerting his control as a method to or exerting his power as a method to control what's happening, which felt authentic, felt um, understandable, even though that's not, you know, f- presumably folks who are rooting for sci-fi are probably rooting for the scientists and they are probably going, boo, boo on you, military. Don't you crush this. You you should have open minds. Boo. But still, the, the reaction was genuine and it felt plausible and it felt valid um mm-hmm. it didn't feel forced uh and uh so the story we have is that there was this little moment where uh you know what 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 is what is this commander going to be doing and 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 how does the sg1 team get out of their that got out of their pickle and how does teal'c uh endure this moment where he is really put on the back foot and how you know like how how does that get resolved and how does the sg1 team escape and you know the the a lot of those little questions were relatively neatly answered, but not in a way that felt trite. They just felt swift. They and and it felt it felt more or less appropriate for a forty minute television show, right? Like mm-hmm. the military commander with his own eyes sees a situation and still believes it to be a ruse. Um, uh, the SG one team is basically kind of in a bind, even to the point that when. Um, when the SGC dials in again, you know, out of the whole thing, I'm shifting gears a tad, out of the whole episode, that one I felt was one of the weaker ones, and even then it was plausible. I really want, oh boy, did I really want Hammond to send in the troops and kick their butts. Oh, I wanted that so bad. <laughs> um, but it didn't happen, and it didn't feel implausible that Hammond would not order a counter-strike immediately, right? Like when he get the, when he got the sass from, uh, from Riger, um, I wanted Hammond to be all like, you know, like suit up and get through there and get our people back home. Right. Like, you know, that's what I wanted. And it didn't. And that's because he's a general of the, you know, you don't become a general by just wantonly ordering people to their deaths. Like, right. you know, like right. it, it, his reservation was appropriate, even though I wanted it to be more, you know, movie style, bang, bang, like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do what it takes type of a thing. Um, so everything about it was very plausible. And so I get through the story and it just felt fine and good fine. Um, Was there much universe advancement? Mm, I don't know. We got this cold dialing program that was that we've we've introduced. Um, Do I think that we're going to see the Bedrosians ever again? I hope so. I honestly don't think so. And I know, like I said, reading the tea leaves, I probably won't. But we've spent so much time developing their or having a writer think about their culture that it would feel like it's a bit of a shame not to revisit it. You know, maybe that matters. Maybe it doesn't. Um, uh, Do I think that this episode is something that a person cannot skip? 
I'm not sure, actually. I'm not exactly sure I quite see some meaningful tie-ins. Um, I am actually disappointed to learn that we won't see the research assistant ever again. Um, you know, in that respect, I was thinking to myself, hey, cool, Jackson got a research assistant. Awesome. <laughs> We're probably going to see him in the background shuffling boxes around or something, right? You know, like, right. you know, some some trite little role, but still a little, a little moment that says, you know, yeah, we're actually, you know, advancing our scientific understanding of this thing, um, you know. So it felt a little, it felt a little encapsulated. And in that regard, you know, it, it by default will fall a little bit back on the scale a little bit for me. But, um, but still, I mean, this one was, this, I, this one just felt well constructed. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the way to, to kind of okay. say it. It just felt cool. well constructed, soup to nuts. So uh, that's, that's my piece. Uh, what do you think? So walking into this episode, I remember feeling kind of meh about this episode. Uh, yeah. in, in previous watchings, I'm like, eh, whatever. It, 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 it is what it is. You know, I'm, I'm not going to actively skip it. Um, uh, which doesn't actually say a whole lot for me, but you know, I'll just let the it go. Yeah. Um, but that said, as I was watching it this time, I, I was paying a little bit more attention uh, to things. Uh, and the first thing that I noticed in this type of watching, this time watching through, is uh, how much acting Tilk does, Christopher Judge does yeah. in this. Yeah. And yes. while I still think that that little burning thing that mark on his nose and the bridge of his uh you know face there uh is is just um weird i I, i'm not thrilled with that makeup job um i don't know what i wanted but uh but you know the acting and and those moments when he was really scared as he's sitting there like what am i going to do i'm in a dark cave I can't see anything. I'm not mm-hmm. healing like I'm supposed to be healing. Oh, look at that. My symbiote is injured. That needs to happen. Uh, my friends have been captured. They're likely going to be tortured and possibly killed. Uh, all of that in just a couple of shots. Um, and I really paid attention and I noticed that. I'm like, wow, that's really, really quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Nyan's response that says, oh, I'm a, a, a scientist and, and scientific advance uh, is just as much an advance whether, you know, whatever direction it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always felt that that's a little bit uh, cartoony and uh, caricature uh, mm-hmm. because nobody operates their worldviews with that much flexibility. It doesn't uh, right. happen. Um, which brings me uh, to uh, the commander and a fable that I heard recently. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this fable that I uh, heard, uh, read recently, um, and it's about this man who uh, woke up one day and he decided that he was dead. Uh, and his okay. wife gets really concerned. What do you mean you're dead? How can you say you're dead? You're walking around, you're doing all this. Nope, nope, I'm dead. He insists that he's dead. And they talk to all sorts of people. They talk to religious leaders. They talk to scientists. They talk to, uh, you know, philosophers and psychologists and, and everybody. And, 
and uh, everybody tries to convince him that he is not dead, that dead people don't do what he does. And he's like, no, no, absolutely, I'm dead. Finally, they, they bring him to, like, his family physician. And this is the, the physician that has known this man since he was a child. And, mm-hmm. and, and the physician says, okay, would you agree with me when I say dead men don't bleed? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Dead men don't bleed. Okay, so we both agreed that dead men don't bleed. Yep, absolutely. Dead men don't bleed. Absolutely. Okay, would you mind if I take just a, a little nick in your, your, your arm, just, you know, nothing serious, we'll immediately cover it up, uh, you make sure you're fine, uh, just, just a small little cut in your arm, will that be okay? Sure, sure, we can try that. He puts his arm out, the doctor cuts his arm, and sure enough, he bleeds, and everybody looks at this, everybody else is just so excited, like, see, look, proof, dead men don't mm-hmm. bleed, you bleed, therefore, you're not dead, he gets it all covered up, and he's like, wow, I never would have guessed, and they're like, they're all thinking, okay, yeah, 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 he's like, apparently, dead men do bleed. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And yep. And, and and that's how humans operate. Um, right. You know. So we have our worldview. We have our system of beliefs. Whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody right. has their own set of beliefs. Some set of uh, guiding principles within their mind, and our brain will do absolutely everything we can to make sure that that system stays put. Yeah. And we will come up with whatever idea we possibly can uh, to make sure that apparently dead men do bleed. Right. Uh, And that's how our brain works. Uh, And so as I watch this episode and I see... uh, uh, Nyan just make this quick 180 turn. There is You're nothing right. that I have learned in this episode about his personality that would suggest that he would be quite so well to make that switch. The only thing that where it would make sense, and I thought that that they were kind of setting up the character in this way, which also made that one particular line feel more throwaway than not, um, was that uh, it would make far more sense if he was a doubter, right? Like, it would be far more believable if somehow we set up his character so that we, the viewer, understand that he always kind of had his doubts about the, um, shoot, what is it called again? Bedrosian? The Bedrosian Um, theory, yeah. The Bedrosian way of understanding people's existence, right? Like, he, there's nothing stopping him from being um, eloquent about what the Bedrosian theory is. He can have a great understanding about what it is and still hold his doubts. And then when he discovers the Stargate, when the gate powers up uh, and when people step through it, he's immediately feeling like his doubts were confirmed. And right. and and you can still uh, you can still give deference to the scientific method and the theory that comes with with, you know, like, y- you know what you know until you don't know it anymore. And then you, uh, you know, if you're being genuine about it, uh, you allow it to percolate a little while and and you you come up with tests and theories, you know, you come up with, with hypotheses and tests to test those hypotheses and you allow it to be repeated. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, there's still admirability in the scientific mind and the scientific method, even though, Zach, you're 100% right. Nobody, nobody sees 
a piece of evidence, no matter how compelling, that immediately does a complete 180 on a person's mind. If right. the the best that it could be is that that person held open the possibility of that even from the start, meaning they were not as firmly convinced as as what our hypothetical scientist uh, is in the for, in the person of, of Naren? Nyan. can't remember his name. Nyan. Nyan. Yeah. Nyan. Um, right? Like, you know, that throwaway line indicates that he was 100%, like, he also, you know, drank the Bedosian Kool-Aid, and here this is, this moment that's completely reversed it. Um, you know, to your point, uh, you know, huh, I guess dead men do bleed. Um, and, and, and so in that respect, I don't think that the story did a good job setting up that possibility, right. uh, you know, and I'm willing to do a little retcon to say, you know, all right, well, let me, well, let me, let me assume that of him because then that'll make it a little bit smoother. And it certainly jams with his portrayal of the character overall. Like this right. seems like however, a person who's willing however, from the yeah, very beginning, he was, uh, actively searching for proof that his own theory, that is to say the Bedrosians were, uh, pre two thousand years old, and come from this. You know, he was looking for a settlement that that goes before the uh, that comes from a time right. prior You're to right. that. Uh, That's right. And uh, that type of thing. Uh, now, this episode here, or this this event, certainly would rock that. Would certainly change that. Um, my complaint with this episode is is that. Uh, even your most open-minded scientist um, is not, well, scientist or otherwise, your open-minded person uh, right. is not going to just change everything on a dime like right. that. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, I consider myself to be a fairly open-minded person. Uh, I have developed a system of thought that has a lot of flexibility and give. It's very elastic in that, so that when something new comes in, uh, it stretches and it can fit mm -hmm. into that. Um, but what I've also discovered as, as I do more study about reading fables like, hey, apparently dead men do bleed, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is, is that even, even within my own set of very flexible systems, um, you would. I, I've built the system flexible so that it can withstand attacks. You know, so that it doesn't have right. to change. Um, and this Great. type of thing right, 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 totally right. changes the the system entirely. Um, and and that is where I would say in the writing it it uh, gets caricature-y and not yes. real life. Agreed. Um, yes. Yeah. It clearly, the story is trying to tell us a moral tale, and that's okay. I happen to agree with the moral tale uh, that uh, information is never bad. Um, information can have consequences that can be bad, um, and it's our interpretation and reaction to information which can create a good or a bad situation. And we see a couple of characters in this tale um, react to a piece of information in a couple of different directions. And we are supposed to think that one is bad and we're supposed to think that one is good. And uh, and the story does a pretty okay job kind of setting that up. And it does a pretty okay job delivering on that morality tale. Right. And there are 
there are flaws and there are shortcuts and there are and there's a couple of moments where things get painted over a little bit too fast so that careful thinking people like you and I and others look at it and go, yeah, I see what you're doing here and sure, fine. Um, but it doesn't necessarily carry the kind of like oomph that maybe it might have if it were told a little differently or if there was a little more time or uh, I mean, maybe that's it. Um, yeah. You know, One and of the things uh, go ahead, finish your thought. No, that was, I was, nah, oh, okay. it was, I was starting, yeah, I was starting to do in a little eddy. I'm, I'm pretty, okay. that's, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, one of the things that frustrated me about this episode is that uh, Commander Riger uh, plays the caricatured version of, uh, of the religious system. And, yes. and you get this, and while this isn't always uh, inaccurate, uh, you know, there is some accuracy in a lot of religious systems uh, that are unwilling to, to address new information, and they're going to try to actively uh, uh, destroy new information for the sake of its own power. Uh, I mean, we saw this with, with Galileo and other things. It still frustrates me as a religious person to see mm-hmm. that be the foil and the, the trite uh, wisdom of the scientist saying, ah, um, oh, you know, uh, uh, a scientific advance in any direction is still advance. Um, while I get that the ideal behind the scientific method is that, on a practical level, that's not how scientists function. Uh, and that scientists tend to function as much as religious people where they have their own worldview and they're not going to let anything destroy their worldview until they can't get past it anymore and then they have to. There was a, a book by Thomas Kuhn uh, a number of years ago, like, I want to say the maybe in the 60s, uh, the evolution of scientific... Something about scientific revolutions, and now I can't remember the name of that book. Mm. But, mm-hmm. uh, but that's what he talks about. It's like, we will take our scientific uh, worldviews, our uh, ideological stances on things, uh, whether that's Newtonian physics or otherwise, and we will keep using that and just patching it and patching it and patching it and patching it until it finally breaks, and only when mm-hmm. it breaks... And there is something that explains everything else better. Does a revolution occur? That something transforms, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that happens within the scientific revolu- uh, realm. Uh, and so, this here using religion as a foil just frustrates me a little bit. Uh, so I'm going. I'm going to push back on you just a tad for kay. two things. First, I thought it was clever. It was clever that that the the rigid inflexible person in the story was a military person not a religious figure yes you're right it is obviously referenced and intentionally referenced that a piece of this person's dogmatic thinking is the religious part no question and that is sort of the central that is that is the core question nothing nothing about it but the method of his rigidity was cleverly clever was cleverly played on his military aspect not necessarily his religious aspect and again i keep using the word clever because that's very intentional i think that it was a bit of a pass to 
tie in religious dogma and militaristic thinking in the form of this person because it was very easy to say his rigidity came about of his militarism of his military thinking and less so of his of his religious rigidity i'm not necessarily using that as an excuse to say anything i'm just acknowledging that i found it particularly it was clever to put that in one person uh to kind of weld that idea together it was easy to sort of go either way on that one as far as like, okay, was is this the dogma talking or is this his militaristic mind talking? So, uh, Well, it's the same. Th- there was, so, they're, they're the same. Uh, he he is a, a militarized wing of their religion. Um, so, and while point, in our society today, at least in the Western world, we tend to uh, separate the religious and the militarized uh, as two distinct things— a, that's relatively rare, even in our present context today, um, and in this particular situation, um, yeah. It, uh, but point the second was that uh, while you are right on the money with how individual people behave, and what we saw was an individual person uh embodying an ideal that is unrealistic for an individual person to do if we're supposed to take this as an allegory then uh nyan doesn't represent a scientist nyan represents science and science when done correctly is able to overcome individual biases precisely because it is repeated and it is intentionally repeated in ways that is intended to stress it. Bad science, of which we have seen many, uh, we've seen a number of it, uh, takes a thing, takes a finding, runs with it, publishes it, and then a whole bunch of people who want that to be the truth sit back and go, yep, that's right. That's, that's the way the world works. The sun goes around the earth, and that makes sense. And uh, we have indeed discovered complications. Uh, wouldn't you know it? Dead men do bleed. Um, you know, these planets and these moons do also orbit the Earth in a very peculiar way. And we've put disks upon disks in order to describe the motion. But you know what? Um, what is the universe if not complex? And then somebody comes by and repeats the experiment, but this time has a different hypothesis and is able to explain it better and explain it further and explain more than just what we have observed is able to predict something. And then we see something else and it fits the model, et cetera. And of course we point to those moments as that's exactly how science is supposed to work. A scientist is able to come up with an idea that then is tested and proves everybody wrong. And then that's too, that's also too fast. Right. But the concept, the, 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 um, the admirable, uh, work of science little s you know as a well maybe big s as a principle um is that uh the thing is recycled enough that that on the whole we all then know something more than we did a bit ago and and so i'm willing to be a bit more positive towards nyan the character because if i'm thinking of it in an allegory and i'm thinking of it as yeah like people who seek knowledge are happy when knowledge is obtained, even if it kind of goes against what they previously understood. And that's a generic idea. Um, Does a person feel happy when their worldview is crushed? Never. Never. (laughs) They never feel happy when their (laughs) worldview is crushed. Um, Does a person 
feel satisfied if they want to know more when they discover that they don't know as much as they thought? The answer is yeah, right? Like a person who pursues knowledge with human exceptions, with human emotion uh, acknowledged in the process does generally feel excited when something is proven to be true that they thought and also when something is proven to be untrue than they thought. And I'm using the word proof a little loosely right now. Um, But the concept is when advancements are made in what we know, there are a number of people that feel excited no matter what that that knowledge is. Um, And that's the altruistic ideal. Now, bringing it back in a 40-minute episode with with a military commander who is, you know, who's trying to squash down what we know to be truth and, uh, you know, a bright eyed, um, you know, easy to like scientist who's trying to extol what we know as truth. We're able to sit back on our, in our couches and go, yep, you see, Oh, bad people, bad military, boo, boo on you. And it is a little simplistic. And in that regard, it's like, yeah, yeah, I I think that's probably where, where I get a little bit hung up. Uh, yeah. In my own little system and worldview. Speaking of that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I am not immune to these um, uh, ebbs and flows in in this process. Um, is is uh, I felt that uh, Captain Riger uh, was especially caricaturized in both his religious and militaristic. Uh, uh, methods Agreed. and every time i run into that um especially done in in the religious circle because that's the circle in which i dwell most of in most of my everyday life um mm-hmm. I, I, I it rubs me the wrong way when religion and frankly the military uh, i'm i'm less sensitive to the military because i'm not military and i acknowledge that mm-hmm. but but when it the caricature is played off as as the truth, uh, and then you know I, I just I, I get frustrated with that, and and there was some of that in this episode um, that that uh, rankled uh, at least the the before walking through the Stargate Zach, and and to mm-hmm. some degree the 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 current walking through the Stargate Zach, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, but I yeah. still I enjoy the conversation. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, I think if this if this episode can be faulted for anything, it was it's that it is, um, it's simplistic in certain respects, and it feels um, incongruous with how detail rich, uh, it was striking me throughout. Honestly, hmm. right? Like, in one respect, it felt very, very interesting and very well thought out, and then we chose to tell a morality tale, which is fine. Uh, it, 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 mostly because I, you know this is a morality tale which I agree with, and uh, more or less, and and the 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 delivery of it was simplistic in the caricature. I think that's a great word to say. Right. Like the characters were caricaturized, and there's some great moments in here, but there's also simple simple stuff. And if it's and if on the whole, if it's like yeah, okay, we had a simple story, then it's not bad. It's just not mind blowing either. That's fair. Well. um, we could talk about this longer, and I could certainly go on and on and on. Um, but uh, I'm also recognizing that it's probably time that we shift our conversation from you and me to the rest of the mm-hmm. community 
in our various mm-hmm. show, social media platforms. So yes, uh, please go ahead and tell us what you think about this episode. Um, and let's keep this conversation going. Cause I think this is yeah. a, uh, whatever else you think about this episode, it does produce uh, valuable things for us as human beings to chew on. And yeah. So, you know, I know we're probably about to shift into what our ratings are, but I'm also really swiftly realizing that the last time that you and I had a real humdinger of a conversation was learning curve. And guess who wrote that one? Oh, yeah. And she wrote this one too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um she's uh, not one to shy away from 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 relatively tough topics. Right. I think this one was a little bit trite, but on the other hand, like here we are. We're having a, we're having a big conversation on it. Yeah, I will say, um, before we shift to- gears totally, uh, as I was reading in the Illustrated Companion, that she kind of thought started off with this idea of what if you had an environment where evolution was understood, what was discovered to be wrong. Um, right. Uh, and I think that that's her just being clever. And, and, and I think that's a, and, and that actually helps to change my perspective a little bit on this. Uh, I don't think that that came out in the final product, but it is fascinating to see that that's where her brain began as she began looking at this story. Um, I bet you that's a little bit of retcon. I bet or, you that she was driving right at the right at the story that we thought we saw, which is what happens when you pit dogma against science, and we immediately are thinking of our current situation: dogma against science, and. Uh, and then she is describing it in a kind of a gotcha way, you know, because it's technically true. And it, I mean, it, it, her, her, her point is not, is not lost. I'm not saying that, that she's being, that she's, that she's actually uh, being um, uh, duplicitous. I think that she's just sort of saying, you know, there's the, the, the question on the table is there's firmly held beliefs that will not change based on evidence. And then there is an idea that evidence guides us, uh, guides us at, at every step of the way. How do those two ideas engage? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, this is certainly an episode of dogma versus a flexibility of thought to incorporate things beyond uh, the dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit clunky, but there it is. Um, and, and that I 100% agree with uh, that process. I, I rail against uh, dogmatic uh, beliefs that don't have right. the flexibility to incorporate uh, the thought process around other people. Uh, I constantly uh, uh, challenge people in my context at work uh, in the church to to do just that: is to to look mm-hmm. at things in a way that is uh, that that uh, steps outside of their own dogma, at least for a little bit. Uh, to see that something might be different from a different yeah. point of view. Um, right. And in that regard, I really appreciate the episode. Uh, what frustrates me is that 98% of the time when somebody wants somebody dogmatic, they go to religions or they go to the military. And in this episode, they hit both of those. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, while that's not necessarily inaccurate, it's also a little bit frustrating because there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I, I've said my piece and I've said too much. That is all. No, you haven't said too much. That is all I have to say. Then, okay. So, Brent. Yes. New ground. Singular, not yes. coffee. Dang it. Sorry. I mean, you can have coffee. You're welcome to have Maybe coffee. Maybe I will. 
Uh, I mean, maybe what I'll are have you? some new grounds you have to be later. Spanish. Shifty Spanish. If you were Spanish, you could have new grounds. But we have new ground. <laughs> Dang it. Dang it. Okay, yeah, new ground. How many chevrons does it get? Um, I liked the world building, even though there wasn't, it doesn't, so I might be giving it too much credit, but I think that there was actually a lot of thought in the world building. It just felt like it was really well put together. Um, and that we were seeing a snippet of it. So it wasn't beating me over the head, but it felt like there was more to it. There was more behind the scenes. Acting was good. The acting was good. I liked, uh, I liked watching Richard Dean Anderson be, uh, O'Neill and, and snarky. The scene where they're all in the cages and he's given his false answers. That was great. I <laughs> loved watching Christopher Judge uh, portray the severely injured Teal'c. Uh, you know, the story itself was tidy. It was predictable. And it was um, contained. And it didn't really illuminate anything interesting or new. It didn't make me think any new thoughts. That's a pretty good way to say it. So, um, overall I was not driven by this episode, but I also was not driven away. So I think I'm going to give it, you know, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give it a five out of seven chevrons. Um, just because there was just enough about it that I enjoyed little detail stuff, world building stuff, like the bats in the cave, like, you know. You could barely see them, and but the, and they, they were only there for a visual thing. But you know, like that was that they were different. Yeah, there was enough about it that made me enjoy existing in that little planet for a little while. But again, I wasn't, you know, at the end of it, I wasn't thinking new thoughts. There you go. Five. So, uh, what about you? What do you think? Um, I'm not going to give it a five. Uh, I was trying to figure out where it was. Um, prior to rewatching and rethinking about this, I probably would have given it something no higher than a three. It just kind of mm. sat in that uh, place in my mind where I'm like, eh, whatever, moving on. Yeah. Um, rewatching it again and paying more attention to things, and then I got to uh, really explore and see the, the uh, acting that Christopher Judge brings in to that, keeping in mind that most of my last several rewatches, I have not been, you know, I've been binge watching things, and so you don't actually like stare at the screen the whole time. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But in this situation, I have been trying to really delve into uh, actually watching, clearly watching it all. And so I saw yep. more of that uh, come through. Um, uh, I have enjoyed our conversation here. Uh, I think that when it's all said and done, uh, it deserves higher than a absolute middling which is 3.5 um it even perhaps deserves a little bit more than that four but it does not deserve uh i don't know when you get to the fives i feel that we're kind of getting into um really good stuff and Mm. i'm not certain this quite falls into quite their category so i'm going to give this a Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 4.5 a 4.5 very understandable yes yep and we do have, Brent, a couple of predictions. Oh, yeah. So uh, we will start with uh, David, uh-huh. uh, our good friend of the podcast. David says, great uh-huh. episode. Oh, wow. Loved the different philosophical conflicts presented. One guy gets set out yeah. to prove yeah. a point, prove point A, and instead proves point B, and is in a way happy to be proven wrong, even though it challenges long-held beliefs. The other uh-huh. guy digs in when presented with facts that completely disprove his point of view. 
There is a lot to take in with this episode. That's all very true. He suggests mm-hmm. that, Brent, you're going to give it six chevrons, and me, he thinks I'm going to really, really like it with 6.5. Interesting. Uh, so interesting. I totally understand where, you know, so the principle on that one is you and me, we like the ones that get us talking. And this one got us talking. Yes. I think where it was dragging was that we felt like we've had this conversation a thousand times. And so, you know, in that respect, I think then we're, we're, we're lower on the scale because this isn't new. And, but it is, it is, you know, controversial might be too strong, but it is, it is stimulating. Yeah. Sure. Um, and we do have uh, predictions from Arnacht. Ah, yes. Arnacht, I predict that Brent will give Newground four chevrons for being mm-hmm. middling unless he finds a philosophical tangent at which point he will recognize the <laughs> middling quality of the episode and give it five chevrons instead. <laughs> I predict that Zach will give it four chevrons. Oh, boy. Wow. Super close oh. and and absolute perfect on my logic train. <laughs> Where I'm like, yeah, but you know, it gives me something to think about. So a little bit okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, after this conversation, I was kind of sitting here thinking, what do I think Brent's going to give this episode? And I'm like, at sure. first I thought, maybe he's going to go so high as to give it a six. He really seemed to dig into this stuff. And and then I'm like, six, or is he going to go down? And 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 then you nailed, you, you, you've settled on that five. And yep. uh, so, you know, uh, I, I knew I... While I, uh, this watch through certainly brought this up for me. Um, this hasn't been a favorite episode of mine. Um, but, uh, despite the fact that even from the beginning, I've enjoyed talking about the philosophy here. Um, I think that if this story were told exactly as it was, but in the script, some, if somehow you could justify that it was the scientists that were digging in their heels and it was the military guy that was, that was, uh, you know, you know, be really on the nose with it about the role reversal. Um, I think that even if you were so on the nose as to do an obvious role reversal, I think it probably would have fared better. It would have been interesting. It would have been at least minimally a, you know, well, we didn't expect them to be the people that were so open-minded type of a thing, which has happened. Yeah. That has happened in our past. Yeah. Like, where folks who are traditionally associated with dogmatic thinking are the ones that are actually the more flexible people that can come forward with a new idea. So anyway. And, and I think, I think more than anything else that right there uh, encapsulates where, where this episode falls, falls down for me is mm-hmm. that it falls into the standard tropes of military religion, dogma, uh, scientist, yeah. non-dogmatic. Um, and if it began with a sense that what if evolution was wrong, um, it didn't end up there. Um, and that would have been far more interesting to me. So, sure. Brent. Yes. Our next episode of Stargate SG1 uh-huh. is entitled Maternal Instinct. Uh-huh. And I ask you, what is maternal instinct all about? Oh boy. Um, oh, man. You know, sometimes the titles are just they just they just they just set you up for like like, what are you going to do? What am I going to, how am I going to make maternal instinct funny? Like, <laughs> to be fair, you don't have to make it funny. You could make well, it dead serious. I don't know if anybody has noticed this, Zach, but I can't really do dead serious. <laughs> like, 
I don't know. I'm not sure if I can do dead serious. All right. <clears throat> maternal instinct. Maternal instinct. Oh, okay. 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 Hang on. All right. All right. Um, next time on Stargate SG-1. The SG... No. Yeah. Stargate... Oh, gosh. Let me start that over sure, again. Sure, sure, next... Yeah, yeah. Next time on Stargate SG-1, the SG-1 team travels through the gate to find themselves on a strange world. They have discovered that they have been transported to a world where Hathor had been reigning as queen for thousands of years. As they explore the world, they discover that there aren't very, there's nobody around. It's, it's abandoned, and they're curious as to why. Granted, Hathor has been defeated, but surely her followers would not have just disappeared. What is going on? They explore inside a new area and discover that there is a chamber with a lot of clones of Hathor. Oh, no. Somehow she has found a way to extend her life by being clone. Anyway, totally she's back. She's back and she's making more gold. Join us next time on Stargate SG-1 Maternal Instinct. <laughs> yeah? Okay. All right. There you go. It, uh, yeah. I, I will uh, settle any... Uh, nerves that you may have there and let you know that uh, Hathor, in fact, does not return in oh, this okay. episode or any other episode. Yeah, ever. Uh, well, I, she might be mentioned in an episode or two. I can't recall specifically, but we never see her again. She is, in fact, dead, dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Dead. Well, um, shall we watch the promo to find out what maternal instinct is actually all about? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Next time on Stargate SG-1. The search for the Harsesis child and the mysterious planet Keb may be over. Oh, hey, it's Ricardo Maltabon. Freytag is back. Ooh. And the baby. She goes into the lake without making a ripple. She goes into the forest without disturbing a blade of grass. Oh, wish. But what they find there may show beyond belief. Mother Nature, we're, we're, we're talking about Mother Nature. Ooh. Ooh. This is cool. It's all next time on Stargate SG-1. Yikes. Yeesh. Okay. Nice. That looks cool. I'm excited yeah. for that. So, um, oh, let's see here. I will say we will watch that episode next time. Yes. So, uh, thanks again f uh, to David for putting those promos together for us. Um, and with that, I invite yeah, you absolutely. to join the conversation. Follow us on Twitter at Stargate Walking. Go to Facebook, Walking Through the Stargate, the Facebook page, and the Facebook group. Join the Facebook group. Join the conversation. Tell mm -hmm. us 
in what ways, uh, that w- what did we miss in this episode? This episode did have a lot of stuff to think about, and the philosophy, and the theology, and the religion, and the military, and the science, and, and all of this stuff just interweaving together. Uh, it, it's, it, it's worth talking about. So what did mm-hmm. we miss? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? All of that stuff. Join us on Facebook for that conversation, or email us at Walking Through the Stargate and talk to us there. Uh, whatever it is, have fun with this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is worth noting, Brent uh, and listeners, that we are going to take next week off for the holidays. Um, yes. Uh, next, normally we record on Saturday mornings, and next Saturday being the twenty eighth. Uh, I know that I will be uh, in my own holiday experiences, kind of mm-hmm. sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and Brent, I assume you will have yours as well. Uh, That's so right. We'll take a week off, but then we'll jump back in uh, in January for that. So I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season at this time of the year, and uh, we'll see you in 2020. Yeah, see you in 2020. Wow, 2020. I know, right? I know. We're not going to talk about that part. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And with that, uh, I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Walking Through the Stargate. See you next time. Bye. Carter, dial it up. Get these people home. (laughs) 